yourself and why you support single payer? Uh, I'm John Yarmuth, the congressman from Louisville, and I've been a long-standing supporter of single payer, a co-sponsor of the single payer legislation in the House, and uh, I think as we've seen over the last many decades, if you looked at every problem that has been identified with health care, it's pretty much resolved by single payer. And I think the debate going on right now is interesting because it, I think it illustrates the fact that the solution to most of our health care issues, particularly insurance issues, is single payer. Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We're an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're a long-standing community partner with Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. The views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. Single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 106.5 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio station, no problem. You can live stream us at forwardradio.org. If you miss a show or want to re-listen, you can do this at forwardradio.org and go to our archives there. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas for programming and our funding. Join us. This week's episode includes extended excerpts from last week's U.S. Senate committee hearing. The hearing was on the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund and the future of Medicaid financing. It sounds pretty dry, but the testimony presented demonstrates how big drug companies and investor-owned entities are looting our Medicare program at the expense of senior care. Senator Elizabeth Warren, committee co-chair, opens up the hearing. To today's hearing before the subcommittee on fiscal responsibility and economic growth. Um, bear with us. Uh, I will be pleased to be working with uh, ranking member Cassidy on the hearing, the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund and the Future of Medicare Financing. Uh, that title may sound a little dry, so let me be more direct. This hearing is about Medicare finances, both how to strengthen the current system and how to pay for expanded coverage to include vision, dental, and hearing. The short version is this. The Medicare system is hemorrhaging money on scams and frauds. It is critical that we stop the flow, and if we do, the system will have more than enough money to operate its current level and increase coverage. Where do we begin? 
Well, how about with giant drug manufacturers? In 2019, total Medicare spending on prescription drugs was $220 billion. Since Medicare is a very high volume buyer, you would think that the Medicare program would be getting a great deal on pricing, but you would be wrong. Because Medicare cannot negotiate prices, drug companies are able to rake in billions in profits. Now, that's bad enough, but the drug companies have more ways to juice their profits. They use anti-competitive tactics like pay-for-delay, product hopping, and patent thickening, all while antitrust regulators turn a blind eye. It's enough to gag a maggot. There is so much we could do to improve Medicare finances. For example, we could save Medicare as much as $130 billion over 10 years just by strengthening enforcement of our antitrust laws and ending one, just one, type of the industry ripoffs. Or consider another option. We could rein in greedy private insurers that take advantage of the Medicare Advantage program. Now, Medicare Advantage was a backdoor effort to privatize the Medicare program. It was built on vague promises of cost savings. But instead, it has cost Medicare almost $150 billion extra over the past 12 years because greedy private insurers are gaming the program's rules, including its risk adjustment process, its benchmark policy, and its quality bonus program, all to squeeze more money out of Medicare and to drive up the cost for taxpayers. Medicare could save nearly $800 billion over 10 years just by ending these scams. Together, just those few changes alone would save Medicare over $900 billion over 10 years. And just to put that in perspective, the estimated shortfall in the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund is $517 billion between 2026 and 2031. And the cost of extending Medicare coverage to include dental, vision, and hearing to the program is just under $360 billion. In other words, we don't need to cut Medicare benefits. We need to cut out the scams that are bringing Medicare down. The number of corporate vultures hoping to feed on Medicare continues to grow. Even today, in the Biden administration, CMS has invited the same insurers that are already scamming Medicare and dozens of new investor-owned organizations to cover traditional Medicare beneficiaries through a new privatized direct contracting model that lets them pocket, get this, as much as 40% in profits. This invites physical disaster, and I hope this administration will reverse this decision. Yes, we need to make changes to Medicare, but not the cuts and privatization that my Republican colleagues have sought in past efforts to so-called reform Medicare. No, 
instead of undermining the system and the benefits that we deliver, we need to crack down on greedy drug manufacturers, on private insurers, and on private equity firms. We need drug price negotiation, and we need better oversight of the Medicare Advantage program so that for every dollar spent, a Medicare beneficiary actually gets a dollar's worth of value. And with more than $900 billion that we could save, we need to expand Medicare coverage to include dental, vision, and hearing benefits for all of our seniors and people with disabilities who are part of the program. That is how we build a healthier America. Now, I look forward today to discussing these issues. I appreciate all of our witnesses who are joining us, and I look forward to hearing about their experiences and their insights. So let's get started with the witness introduction. Ranking member Cassidy is gonna join us for his opening statement just a little bit later. Um, but we've got a great set of witnesses here today to share their views on Medicare financing, and I very much appreciate your attendance today. First, joining us virtually, we have Dr. Michael Chernew, uh, Dr. Chernow is the chair of the Medicare Payment and Access Commission, which is the independent congressional agency that was established to advise Congress on issues affecting the Medicare program. Second, joining us remotely, we have Dr. Susan Rogers, the president of Physicians for a National Health Program. She is also an assistant professor of medicine at Rush University, and she recently retired from the Stroger Hospital of Cook County. Third, also joining us virtually, we have Professor Amy Kapchinski. She is a professor of law at Yale Law School and serves as faculty co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and the Law and Political Economy Project. Her research focuses on information policy, intellectual property, international law, and global health. Next, joining us remotely, we have Katherine Baker, Dean and Professor of the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. Professor Baker studies the effectiveness of public and private health insurance, including the effect of reforms on the distribution and the quality of care. And then finally, our fifth witness joining us virtually, we have James Kapretka, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Senior Advisor at the Bipartisan Policy Center. So I want to thank you all for joining us here today. I look forward to hearing your testimony. Dr. Chernew, could we start with you, please? I recognize you for five minutes. Thank you, Chair Warren and Ranking Member Cassidy, Senators and staff. Um, Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today on behalf of MedPAC about Medicare solvency and the future of Medicare financing. Before I launch into the main thrust of my comments, I would like to acknowledge the enormous toll that the pandemic has placed on all Americans, particularly Medicare beneficiaries and the clinicians and healthcare workers who have been on the front lines of the pandemic for the last two years. Turning to the topic at hand, Medicare's fiscal challenges, the hospital insurance part A trust fund is projected to be exhausted around 2026 or 2027. 
the Medicare trustees estimate that it would take an immediate reduction in Part A spending of $70 billion to put Part A's fi fa financing on a stable footing. However, Part A is only part of Medicare's fiscal problem. Spending on other parts of Medicare is also growing rapidly and contributes to Medicare's overall sustainability problems. I will be discussing policies related to both Part A sustainability and overall Medicare spending. It is important to start with context. The core issue is that we are striving to give more and better care to more beneficiaries with relatively fewer workers to provide financing. Around the time of Medicare's inception, there were 4.6 workers for every Medicare beneficiary. By 2029, there are expected to be only two and a half workers per beneficiary. This demographic challenge heightens the need to avoid paying more than needed to support beneficiary access to high quality services and to find ways to alter patterns of utilization to reduce spending while maintaining quality and access. My written testimony outlines recommendations that address traditional fee-for-service Medicare, Medicare Advantage, the Medicare Part D program. The first set of recommendations would reduce payments to certain providers that have historically been substantially overpaid under traditional fee-for-service Medicare. Most of these providers are funded through Part A, so these recommendations produce immediate savings for, Part a, for the Part A trust fund, and we assert that these payments will not compromise access to or quality of care. These recommendations appear in our annual March report. Shifting to the Medicare Advantage program, this program allows beneficiaries enrolled in both Part A and Part B to receive benefits from private plans rather than traditional fee-for-service Medicare. Medicare pays these plans a fixed monthly amount for each enrollee that is adjusted up or down to reflect the characteristics and medical conditions of that enrollee. Although Medicare Advantage plans are able to provide Medicare coverage at a cost below fee-for-service, Medicare pays plans more for their enrollees than they would cost in fee-for-service. This occurs for three main reasons. First, in low fee-for-service spending markets, MA payments are deliberately set at levels higher than fee-for-service spending to balance across markets access to MA plans and added benefits. Second, MA plans are paid more if they serve sicker beneficiaries, giving plans a strong financial incentive to identify as many diagnoses as possible. Providers do not have the similar coding incentives in traditional fee-for-service, resulting in a risk adjustment system that is poorly calibrated. Third, Medicare pays Medicare Advantage plans more for achieving higher ratings in the Medicare Advantage Quality Bonus Program, but we have found that this program likely does not lead to better outcomes for Medicare Advantage enrollees. If Medicare Advantage plans can provide the Medicare benefit for less than traditional fee-for-service, Medicare should pay them in a manner that allows the program to share in those efficiencies. This follows the general principle that if suppliers of goods and services can do so at a lower cost, payments should go down. MedPAC has made several recommendations to address the rates paid to Medicare Advantage plans that involve reforms to how benchmarks are calculated, the methods for adjusting payments to reflect diagnostic coding, and the structure of the quality bonus program, all of which are described in more detail in my written testimony. Moving to the Part D program, the Commission has long recognized the clinical value of prescription drugs and the importance of Part D in promoting access to needed medications. Part D is administered by private plans that receive a mix of capitated payments and cost-based reinsurance subsidies to finance the pharmacy benefit. The reinsurance payments occur after an enrollee's prescription drug costs reach the catastrophic phase of the Part D benefit, shifting the cost liability onto the Medicare program. Medicare's payments for reinsurance have grown considerably, 
rising from less than half of the capitated payments in 2007 to nearly five times as large by 2020. The design of the Part D program could be altered to both save money for Medicare and improve incentives around prescription drug pricing, plan design, and out-of-pocket spending. Our June 2020 report to the Congress outlines a comprehensive recommendation to redesign the Part D benefit to accomplish these goals. In closing, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you today. MedPAC stands ready to help you address the difficult fiscal challenges faced by Medicare. We look forward to continued discussions, and I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Chernow. Uh, and now, would you like to do your opening statement, or you want me to do one more of our witnesses? One more of our witnesses. Good. Um, uh, thank you, Dr. Chernow. Dr. Rogers, I'd like to recognize you for five minutes, please. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me to, to join this uh, hearing on this topic. Um, my name is Dr. Susan Rogers, and I'm a general internist from Chicago, Illinois, and I'm president of Physicians for a National Health Program, which is a national organization of more than 24,000 doctors that advocates for a single-payer health care system. And I am also a proud beneficiary of traditional Medicare. The current threat to Medicare is very real. What we now call traditional Medicare was created in 1965 to provide a safety net for seniors and the disabled, many of whom lived in poverty, and to provide equity in health care when it effectively desegregated our nation's hospitals. Today, even though it is the most popular, effective, and efficient health program in our nation's history, Traditional Medicare is at risk of being sold off to the highest bidder with no input from seniors, health providers, or even members from Congress. Now, the privatization of Medicare began when Nixon enacted the HMO Act in 1973, and privatization actually exploded in 2003 with the creation of Medicare Advantage, the version of Medicare run by commercial insurers. The common thread among these privatization experiments is the theory that inserting a middleman between Medicare and its health providers between physicians and patients will somehow save money or improve care. However, it has failed at both. In fact, researchers estimate that Medicare overpaid Medicare Advantage insurers by more than $106 billion from 2010 through 2019. And that's money that could have been spent on seniors' care. Despite decades of failure, CMS launched a new model of Medicare privatization called the direct contracting. And instead of paying doctors directly, Medicare pays third-party middlemen called direct contracting entities, or DCEs, a set amount to manage seniors' health. DCEs are then allowed to pocket what they don't pay for in services, which is a dangerous financial incentive to restrict and ration seniors' health care. If you haven't heard of direct contracting, that's by design. It was created in 2019 by the CMS Innovation Center, also called CMMI, which is authorized to conduct payment experiments and scale them up to all of Medicare without input from Congress. Virtually any type of company can apply to be a DCE, including commercial insurers, venture capitalists, or physician groups. 
Seniors in traditional Medicare can be automatically assigned to a DCE without their knowledge or understanding if their primary care provider is affiliated with a DCE. Then the only way for a senior to opt out is to change primary care physicians, making this actually a bait and switch program for seniors. Forcing seniors to, to switch physicians is not only a terrible burden, but it undermines the importance of the patient-physician relationship that clearly DCEs don't acknowledge. The new model program that DCE middlemen will somehow lower costs and improve coordination of care, but former CMS and CMMI officials estimate that DCEs may spend as little as 60% of their Medicare payments on patient care, keeping the other 40% as profit and overhead. How this is an improvement on traditional, traditional Medicare, I don't know, since Medicare spends 98% of its funds on health care. As a physician, I understand that it is my duty and responsibility to help make the care decisions along with my patients and then coordinate that care. That role is not for investors to take from us. They do not coordinate care, they coordinate payment. Medicare was designed as a lifeline for American seniors and adults living with disability. We cannot let it become a playground for Wall Street investors. If middlemen in healthcare actually save money and improve outcomes, the US wouldn't have the most expensive and ineffective healthcare system in the world. We don't need to put seniors through another failed experiment to prove this. So like an old African proverb says, if you keep doing what you've been doing, you'll keep getting what you already got. So we need to get back to what we know works and that is traditional Medicare. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Rogers. Uh, Professor Kepchinski, I recognize you for five minutes. Chair Warren, Ranking Member Cassidy, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, I appreciate the opportunity to testify today. My name is Amy Kapczynski. I teach at Yale Law School. And today I want to talk about the problem that high drug prices and abuses of monopoly power pose for the Medicare program and for Medicare beneficiaries. In the last year, close to 40% of Americans reported that they did not take a medicine as prescribed because of the cost. This is nothing short of a crisis, and it's driven by drug prices that have been rising unchecked for decades. From 1980 to 2018, pharmaceutical spending increased more than tenfold in real terms, so excluding economy-wide inflation. Just last year, more than 100 drugs saw price increases beyond inflation. We've seen old drugs like insulin rise hundreds of percent in recent decades. The average new cancer drug in the United States today costs more than $175,000. And these prices for old and new drugs do not reflect in any logical way the benefits or the R&D costs. So for Medicare patients, high prices translate into unaffordable coinsurance bills and deductibles and rising premiums. So one recent study, for example, showed that seniors on Medicare who have common chronic conditions like diabetes saw their out-of-pocket drug costs rise by over 40% between 2009 and 2019. Seniors can't afford these costs, and we're seeing people delay treatment and even die as a result. High drug prices are also a major challenge for Medicare financing. So uh, as Senator Warren mentioned, 
we see about $220 billion in drug costs for Medicare. Uh, and bringing down costs can result in enormous savings. So just for one example, CBO estimated that the legislative proposals in HR3, the Elijah Cummings Lower Drug Costs Now Act, would save the program about $50 billion a year on average. And if we curbed patent abuses, we could do still better. So why are drug prices so high in the U.S.? How should we think about this problem? The core is really quite simple. Drug companies have monopoly rights that permit them to set high prices, particularly when we have widespread insurance and also mandates even to cover monopolized products. Companies also engage in anti-competitive conduct that exacerbates the problem. So this is why, though most prescriptions in the U.S. are for generic drugs, spending is heavily concentrated on patented medicines. So just 7% of drugs in Medicare Part D drive 60% of the spending. And Medicare, of course, is forbidden by law from negotiating for lower prices. So the historic argument for these high prices has been R&D, but unfortunately prices we know, know are not set in relationship to R&D. They're set according to what the market can bear. And that's not about R&D costs, but it's about market power. So we see that the largest pharmaceutical companies, for example, spend significantly more, in some cases twice as much on marketing as they do on R&D, even in a global pandemic. We see old drugs like insulin, no new innovation, rising dramatically in prices. And we see exploitative anti-competitive conduct like pay-for-delay deals to keep generic drugs off the market for several more years or investment in patent lawyers rather than innovation to create thickets of patents that surround a drug and delay entry again of generic competition. So there's a lot of concern in Washington today about inflation, and it's worth noting that this is a fundamentally inflationary environment, and it has been for a long time. And I think it's worth stressing two things about this. One, it's very clear in this context that we're seeing inflation due to unregulated monopoly power. Two, it's causing enormous pain to ordinary Americans. And three, we know how to solve it, in fact, and without causing sector-wide pain as other approaches might. So I want to just then uh, come to several recommendations. Uh, we do actually know how to solve this problem. Many other countries, in fact, all other industrialized countries have systems of um, fair pricing for medicines. Um, borrowing from those, we've had proposals that have gone, uh, become very well developed now, and we should draw upon these and ensure that to protect the future of the Medicare program and the future of Medicare beneficiaries that Congress passes legislation that's going to curb high launch prices by enabling HHS to negotiate fair prices and think about fair prices by looking at R&D costs, how much public funding there was, what the investment risk was, the benefit of the drug, all of those things, and then backing up those negotiations with strong enforcement measures. For example, the ability to allow generic competitors into a market if a company refuses to sell. We should also have legislation that penalizes price spikes to prevent price gouging on existing drugs. We should explore legislation to curb anti-competitive patent thicketing, and that would strengthen rules against pay-for-delay settlement deals. And we should also critically provide the FTC with more resources and authority to address anti-competitive conduct in this sector. Thank you. Last of them. And right now, which would... Medicare spends too much money on prescription drugs. The program is barred from negotiating prices, which means that seniors and taxpayers pay way too much just to improve the profits of giant drug companies. Build Back Better would change this by giving HHS the authority to negotiate the prices of some high-priced brand-name drugs. 
That's not all. It would also penalize manufacturers that raise prices above inflation and restructure Medicare's drug benefit to make drug companies and insurers do more to cover the costs of prescription drugs. Now, I'm all in for these ideas. These are good ideas. It's really great. The drug pricing provisions of Build Back Better will save an estimated $297 billion. That's a lot of money. But it's not all we can do. We can drive down drug costs in Medicare by enforcing current competition laws. Drug companies use a host of dirty tricks to limit competition, to extend their monopolies, and keep prices high, and we should put a stop to it. So if I can, let me start with you, Professor Kapchinsky. Econ 101 tells us that a healthy market is one where lots of companies compete with each other to attract customers and that that drives prices down. Does that describe the current state of the pharmaceutical industry? You know, it really doesn't, um, and I'll, for two reasons, really. One is, as with many other industries, we really have seen a wave of consolidation in recent decades. Um, and this kind of consolidation and concentration in the industry does lead to problems, and it can threaten innovation here as elsewhere. A colleague of mine here at Yale, Florian Aderer, and, and colleagues did a study showing that a substantial number of pharmaceutical acquisitions between 5 and 7% are aimed solely at shutting down innovation that competes with the portfolio of a company purchasing. And those are killer acquisitions, and they affect um, the development of new drugs. But there's a broader problem, too, and that is even without traditional kind of industry consolidation, the pharmaceutical industry has monopoly power baked into it, and that's because of the role of patents and other kinds of exclusive rights that the government grants and that the companies can take advantage of. So they can, as you suggest, spend their energy not on innovating but on creating thickets uh, of patents around their profitable drugs to delay generic entry. They can abuse the, the profits that they get investing in patent lawyers to pay their competitors to stay out of the market and pay for delay deals. And so we really don't have a market that functions in a conventional competitive way. Instead, it's sort of riddled with opportunities to uh, expand and exploit monopoly power. So that's really powerful. Let me just break that apart into both pieces. Uh, first about the consolidation in the industry. As I understand it, between 1995 and 2015, the 60 leading pharmaceutical companies merged into 10. So that's how much concentration there was. Drug companies, we know, are getting bigger and bigger, which stifles competition and elevates prices. But as you say, drug companies do even more to boost their profits. So they game the system to extract as much as they can. And you, you mentioned about the patent system already baked into it. And then on top of that, there's the abuse of the patent system. So in a competitive market, we'd expect to see drug companies fund new scientific discoveries, get a patent to protect their monopoly for a few years while they earn a, a rate of a return on it that covers their initial expenses until the time runs out on the patent and competitors can get in and drive down the price of that drug. That would mean that the vast majority of new drug patents would be issued for new drugs to be brought to the market. That's what a competitive market would look like, and that's how the system was supposed to work. Professor Kapchinsky, 
Is that how the system works? Are new patents more likely to be issued for new drugs coming onto the market? Or are they mostly issued for old drugs that are already being sold? Yes, it's a terrific question. Many people think drugs are patented, and that means there's a patent on the compound, right? the, act, the thing that actually cures you or helps you. Um, that's really not the case. So drugs are commonly patented with dozens, sometimes even more than 100 patents, and there'll maybe one on the active ingredient, but there'll be many others, as I said, sometimes dozens on other kinds of things. In the, in the sort of academic literature, we call these secondary patents. They are patents on things like a formulation, a particular dosage, a tiny alteration in the chemical structure that maybe provides no therapeutic benefit, um, but that allows another patent that you can then use to sue and, and try to extend the years of life. So I did a study about this in 2012 with some colleagues, and we found that it was more common for drugs to have patents of these trivial sort of secondary types than it was for them to have compound patents in particular. And in fact, the, the patents come later, these trivial secondary patents. Patents. Um, and, and so if you, in the study that we did, um, we, these patents could ex extend patent life for the drug as a whole anywhere from about six to seven years normally. Wow. Okay, so great. That, why is that a problem? Well, that kind of evergreening and thicketing, you know, these are not therapeutic benefits, and you still get 20 years for those patents, right? So it adds more years of monopoly, and we can see that it happens more with drugs that are more expensive. And when you have drugs that can charge Medicare billions of dollars a year, you add a couple of extra years onto that, and of course, you get a really serious uh, fiscal problem. So in other words, the drug companies are racing to protect the profits from their old drugs with more and more patents, not because there's something special about those drugs, but because they want to use the patents, that is this protected period of time, to stop competitors from being allowed to make them. And the longer they have a total monopoly on the drug, the longer they can keep prices sky high and rake in money from the taxpayers through the Medicare program. So let me just ask you, Professor uh, Kapchinsky, is there any information on how much some of these tactics cost Medicare? You know, there is. There have been a few studies of this. One found that um, for a drug that was made by AbbVie called Humira, that delayed generic entry for that just one drug cost Medicare over $2 billion between 2016 and 2019. Uh, there was another um, study that just came out about delayed generic entry of a multiple sclerosis drug, and that cost Medicare up to $6.5 billion in excess spending over two years. And as you say, this is a problem because we're also incentivizing, this system incentivizes companies to do trivial innovation instead of really substantial innovation, and it's costing Medicare billions of dollars. So it, it, just two drugs that you mentioned, that's $8.5 billion dollars in excess Medicare spending just, just from two drugs. So I understand that there's another trick that the drug companies use, and that's called pay-for-delay schemes, in which they pay potential competitors not to produce generic versions of a drug because the generic version would undercut prices for their own drugs. Professor Kapchansky, is there any research on how much these pay-for-delay schemes are costing Medicare? Um, yes, there's actually been some research on that as well. And once again, we're talking billions of dollars. So a um, professor named Robin Feldman recently did a study that calculated that pay-for-delay deals 
um, costs um, the federal government between 2.3 and 13.5 billion dollars is measured by list prices. So that's a tremendous uh, savings there as well if we could really curb these uh, attempts to keep generic companies off the market. Right. So that could be 130 billion dollars over 10 years enough to pay for hearing and vision benefits for all Medicare beneficiaries. So I think of this as imagine if we put an end to all these tactics and force drug companies to actually function in a competitive market, we generate even more savings. And that's not counting the savings that taxpayers could get from Medicare actually being able to negotiate prices. This is not something special to the pharmaceutical industry. We see in industry after industry, research shows us that monopoly power leads to higher prices. And the pharmaceutical industry is just no exception to that. We should strengthen enforcement of our nation's antitrust laws. We should crack down on anti-competitive behaviors that huge drug companies use routinely to keep their prices high. And we should save Medicare billions and billions of dollars as a result. Thank you. Um, So we were talking earlier about drug companies, but they're not the only ones who have figured out how to game the rules and drive up costs. A few decades ago, Congress started letting private insurance companies administer Medicare for seniors who opted in. The insurance companies claimed, when they first were getting permission to do this, that they would run Medicare better than the federal government. More benefits at less cost. That was the promise. But over the past 12 years, Medicare Advantage, the part of Medicare where insurance companies have the biggest role, has actually cost the federal government $143 billion more than traditional Medicare. Meanwhile, insurance companies have soaked up literally billions and billions of dollars in profits from undertaking this. Now, one serious problem is how Medicare pays insurance companies. So let's imagine a specific patient who goes to the doctor for her heartburn. It turns out that this patient had shoulder surgery a few years ago. She also has exercise-induced asthma. Dr. Chernow, would the patient's surgical history or her asthma diagnosis affect how her doctor gets paid for this visit in traditional Medicare, if she's covered by traditional Medicare? Uh, sorry. No, in, uh, in fee-for-service, um, physicians get paid for the visit and related tests and services that they provide, um, which in this case would likely be limited to the patient's um, heartburn or whatever condition they went in for, not a bunch of conditions that happened in the past. It's not what they're being treated for at the time of the visit. Okay, so let's keep building on this. So in traditional Medicare, doctors are paid for the services they provide. And for this patient, if her doctor doesn't need to take an x-ray of her shoulder or prescribe her a new inhaler for her asthma, then those diagnoses may not even appear on her record. That could mean that doctors in traditional Medicare underreport diagnoses, but Medicare Advantage has the opposite problem. Dr. Chernow, how would discovering those additional two diagnoses change the way that Medicare pays Medicare Advantage for patient care? Um, Sure, so because Medicare Advantage gets paid more for patients that have 
um, more diagnoses, at least in the following year, they get paid more. Um, they would generally get paid more if they're able to record more diagnoses. If I could, um, let me illustrate with a slightly different example, which is um, some work that a colleague of mine, Tom McGuire, did suggest that for every 100 patients in fee-for-service with congestive heart failure, um, only about 75% have reported congestive heart failure in the following year. Um, because Medicare Advantage plans um, have the financial incentives, they devote resources to identifying those patients, and by adding that code, the plans therefore get paid more for um, identifying undiagnosed congestive heart failure or preventing previously diagnosed congestive heart failure um, dropping off in subsequent years. Um, and that leads to higher Medicare Advantage payments because the risk adjustment system, as you point out, is poorly calibrated. Okay. So this risk adjustment means that payments are going to go up. And I get the underlying logic that a sicker person is going to use more health care services, so Medicare is going to compensate for the additional risk. But I take it that what you're saying, Dr. Chernit, is that having a higher risk score in Medicare Advantage does not necessarily mean that the patient is either going to get more care or better care. Is that is that what you're saying here? Yeah. Well, they might not necessarily get more or better care, or or they might. It's the calibration issue. But yes, you're correct. They might not. Those added codes may not actually be treated. That is true. Okay. And Medicare Advantage plans, they're not finding new diagnoses so they can help people get more care. They're doing it so they make more money for Medicare because that's how the system is set up. In fact, an entire industry has been created to help them do exactly that. And as a result, Medicare ends up paying more for a beneficiary's care in Medicare Advantage than it would pay for exactly that same beneficiary's care in traditional Medicare. So, Dr. Chernin, You've studied this for a long time. If the federal government cracked down on these insurance company practices, how much money would it save Medicare? So um, the Medicare program already takes some money out to adjust for this miscalibration. Um, the commission believes that that's insufficient. And so if you took out another three to four percentage points, for example, which is our estimate of the added payment, um, in 2021, you would have saved about uh, $10 billion. Um, yeah, that's, and you know, I, I actually, we were looking into this, uh, my team and I, it turns out that other experts have even put the number higher. Some say as high as $600 billion over the next eight years. It, think about it, that one change alone creates more money than the hospital insurance trust fund's entire projected shortfall through 2031. And that's not even the only scam that Medicare Advantage plans use. We can save almost $200 billion more by eliminating some of the other tricks that Medicare Advantage plans use to squeeze money out of Medicare. Uh, that would be enough to make a down payment on lowering the Medicare eligibility age or adding dental benefits to Medicare. Insurance companies have promised more competition and lower costs for decades, but instead they have cost the Medicare program billions of dollars. And that's because the goal of giant insurance companies is not to save the government money. The goal 
is for the insurance company to make profits for themselves. And more often than not, they do that by ripping off the federal government and denying people the care that they need. I think it's time for Congress to put an end to this kind of corporate profiteering. So ordinarily at this point, I would hand uh, the questions back over to Senator Cassidy, but we're trying to manage votes at the same time. So Senator Cassidy's not here. So I'm gonna turn around and go to another round of questions. I'm not gonna let you all um, waste any time at all. Um, so here's where I'd like to start on this one. And that is in 2019, the Trump administration announced a new Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, initiative to allow private plans to use the same scams that they perfected over in Medicare Advantage over and import those into traditional Medicare. Once again, driving up costs for taxpayers. Now, under CMMI's direct contracting model, Medicare beneficiaries will be assigned to a direct contracting entity. We heard about this earlier in, in uh, direct testimony here. These are called DCEs. And like the insurance companies in Medicare Advantage, DCEs will receive a fixed payment to cover the beneficiary's care but then they get to pocket virtually all of the money that they don't spend on patient care. This has set off a global gold rush on Wall Street. So beneficiaries are enrolled in DCEs based on their primary care provider so that insurance companies, private equity firms, and institutional investors are scooping up primary care practices so that they can get in on the deal. And these investor-owned doctor practices use the same playbook as Medicare Advantage to squeeze more money out of Medicare. Dr. Rogers, you spoke about this, you have studied this. Of the 53 direct contracting entities that CMMI has already approved, how many are owned by private investors and insurance companies as opposed to hospitals, doctors, and other healthcare providers? Uh, thank you, Senator Warren, for this question. Um, there are 28 DCEs, and out of that, there are 28 DCEs that are investor-owned, and there are six that are owned by four Medicare Advantage insurers. So these are the ones that are there for the profit, and to me, there is clearly a conflict of interest if you are there to, to uh, provide health care, but your mission is to make money. It's a conflict of interest, and it, it's not going to ever be equal. And, and unfortunately, who is going to lose our patients? Denial of care is the way they will control costs. They will limit access, pre-authorization. There's a lot of mechanisms that are there. One of the things that have been done too, and we talked about the upcoding and how you know patients are made to look sicker. It's embedded in the software. So as a physician, I can't sign off on a chart until I've clicked enough boxes so that they can upcode. Wow. So it's part of the infrastructure now so that it's not what I want to diagnose them as, as, as their provider or their physician. It's, it's embedded there in the structure. And, and this is by design. I mean, what you're talking about when you say it's embedded in the structure, the majority 
of these DCEs are investor-owned. And CMS has said that one of its goals for the direct contracting model is to bring in organizations, and I'm going to quote them here, that currently operate exclusively in the Medicare Advantage program to bring that into traditional Medicare and to make the deal even more attractive for these private actors, CMMI has weakened key guardrails that will allow insurers and investors to pocket even more profits through the direct contracting model than they can now do in Medicare Advantage. So let me, let me ask another question around this. Under Medicare Advantage, plans are legally required to spend at least 85% of their revenues on patient care, essentially sets a 15% cap on total profits. So Dr. Rogers, does the same cap exist in DCE programs? Well, it's a very much smaller cap, I can tell you that, because the DCEs only have to be, they can keep up to 60%. So that's right. So in other words, they can make 40% in profits. Spend 60%. I had that backwards. Yeah. They need to spend 60%, but they are able to take keep 40%. So that that's, I mean, when we talk about trying to control costs, they're not adding anything to care. These are investors. They know nothing about healthcare delivery. These are investors who are making money. And to me, I think healthcare should be off the buffet table when investors come in and deceive decide what they want to put on their plate well, you know, for them. I, I want to say on this, I support coordinated care, and I appreciate the potential that coordinated care models have to lower costs and improve the quality of care. But give me a break on what's happening here. Wall Street is not racing to buy up clinics because they want to expand coordinated care models and limit profits. Private equity and insurance companies want the eye-popping profits that are possible when the federal government lets them pocket whatever it is they can avoid spending on seniors and people with disabilities who need health care. So, Dr. Rogers, right now, as you know, we are in a demonstration project phase on this. If this demonstration project is allowed to proceed, does it effectively amount to a privatization of Medicare? Totally, totally. If you look at our healthcare system now, Medicaid is very much privatized, private insurance is privatized, um, there's several other things, and then the other big one is Medicare, which is becoming privatized. And by privatized, I mean public monies are going into an entity and giving total control of that entity to those dollars. Yeah. That is complete privatization. So privatization, and let me just ask, over the 35-year history of Medicare-managed care, including Medicare Advantage, have these private sector arrangements ever delivered the cost savings that taxpayers were promised when the plan started? Never, never, never. Um, they paid billions, and in fact, there's managed care companies have paid hundreds of billions more than if people had been in traditional Medicare. 
Remember, traditional Medicare has an overhead of 2%. There's nobody working in DC and in CMS who's making millions of dollars a year as their salary. So you've got a whole, you know, different system in the private system, and that's where all the money is going. And even if we look eight years ahead, because the DCE um, from CMMI, they want to move everybody into traditional, they want everybody to move from traditional Medicare to the DCE by the end, by 2030. And that cost us more than $600 million billion. Yeah. So we, this is not about providing care. I mean, this is, you know, it's all about making money. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Rogers. You know, it is completely baffling to me that the Biden administration wants to give the same bad actors in Medicare Advantage free reign in traditional Medicare without intervention. The 53 existing DCEs will enroll as many as 30 million of the 36 million beneficiaries who are now in traditional Medicare. That means that 80% of traditional Medicare will be privatized. And the new owners of Medicare will use the same scams they've been using for years in Medicare Advantage to drive up costs of traditional Medicare. My view is that President Biden should not permit Medicare to be handed over to corporate profiteers. Doing so is going to increase costs and put more strain on the hospital insurance trust fund. The Biden administration should shut down the direct contracting model immediately. If you believe that Medicare is worth saving from the profiteers, join us. Go to kyhealthcare.org to learn more. If you believe that health care is a human right, check. We do too. Go to kyhealthcare.org. Kay Tillo is our chairperson. You can contact Kay directly at nursenpo at AOL.com. That's nurse NPO at AOL.com. You can sign up for our newsletter and meeting invitations. Our meetings are held virtually uh, due to COVID. So for Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley. Thanks for listening. So I'm a nursing major and I've seen the healthcare from I've seen healthcare from multiple sides and it's a lot more expensive to come in to an emergency room and be treated for an exacerbation of like a lung disease or a kidney disease when that could have been prevented a long time ago if you had been going to your clinic normally but some people if they don't have health insurance they can't do that. So it's really important to reach out and try to get um, basic forms of health care for people that may not be able to um, pursue it themselves. So you have to extend your reach. Very good. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm Sarah, and I think that single-payer health care should be in the U.S. because it works really well in other countries, and I believe that health care is like 
a right, not a privilege, and everyone should have access to health care, especially in a really advanced country like the U.S. Good deal. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Angela. Jay, why would you support a single-payer system? Well, I think that's the only way forward. We, we lag far behind any of the other industrialized countries. I think uh, health care is a right. I don't, I don't think it should be something that's for profit. I don't think someone should have to choose between paying their bills and, um, you know, uh, getting medical care. It's the only way forward for this country. We can see while, while the ACA it's good it made advancements, you know, and it does need to remain in place for the time being. As we've seen, you know, putting health care in the hands of for-profit companies just doesn't work. It makes uh, human life a, a profit motivator. Yeah. A so. commodity. Yeah, a commodity, yes. Yeah. Okay, good so. deal. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. I'd rather not. Thank you, though. Hi. Um, my name is Amanda Groves, and I live in Benton, Kentucky. I depend upon the ACA because right now I'm not a full-time employee. I work part-time. I'm a substitute in the schools and I'm also a student in seminary pursuing a second career which I am very excited about. So it is because of ACA that I have the freedom to pursue an, uh, my dream, do something different, and look out for my family. My husband has health issues. He can't drive, and he has several medical appointments. So it would be very hard for me to work a full-time job. So it has been very beneficial to me. Um, I get supplements from the government. I'm not on Medicaid, but um, I do get some help from the government. But I still have a pretty high, pre pretty high premium, pretty high deductibles. And so I still have medical bills, so this, there, it is not a free ride. And so single payer would be the best answer for everyone involved. Um, even though I have insurance, I have really bad knee issues. They need to be replaced, but I can't, I, I can't do it because I, I do not have the funds uh, saved up to do something like that, to commit myself to something like that. So single payer would allow me to live my life to the fullest.